about this time, sunset on Good Friday, Joseph of Arimathea would have been sealing up the tomb of Jesus. A few hours ago, at three o'clock, with a loud voice, Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. He had been on the cross six hellish hours. This evening, we're going to rewind the clock 24 hours and take three snapshots, three different men who were impacted in very different ways by Christ's sacrifice. So let's go back to Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was reading the Gospel of Mark a few months ago, and I saw something in the account of that night that I had never seen before in my life. I hope that happens to you sometimes when you read God's Word, maybe something that you feel like you've read many times, and for the first time, something leaps off the page. And last Sunday, I had a brief conversation with Pastor Erickson, and I was all excited. I said, I've been reading this my whole life, and I never saw it before, and I, I showed it to him. He's like, oh yeah, I've totally seen that. <clears throat> it's never a good idea to play stump the pastor. But this is from Mark 14, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been agonizing in prayer, sweating blood, knowing what awaits him, praying that uh, famous prayer to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then we read this in verse 43. This is Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now in a few moments, we're going to turn our attention to Judas. Verse 46, And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. The disciples were taken by fear. And they bolt, and Jesus is now being led away. And the next two verses were the ones I had never seen before. Perhaps you're like Pastor Mark, and they're very familiar to you. Verse 51, but a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And the next verses continue with Jesus' trial before Annas, the high priest. Well, what in the world is going on here? There, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that all the disciples fled. And we know there was a, another young man there with his pajamas on, which makes sense. It's the middle of the night. And when all the disciples ran away, what did he do? He followed Jesus. 
And when they tried to arrest him, his jammies came off and he ran away without them. Most biblical scholars believe that this is actually the young man, Mark, the author of the gospel, very likely a teenager. And it was common in the ancient world if you were writing a historical account and you were involved in the history that you wouldn't actually name yourself. Uh, John did this in his gospel. He didn't talk about me. He talked about the disciple Jesus loved as a reference to himself. But what struck me about this small moment, uh, a man without a name, most likely Mark, everyone else ran away. One young person continued to follow Jesus. And we are in a world, even in the church, where disciples are running away from Christ out of fear, out of being ashamed of the gospel, being ashamed of the word of God. If you're not in that situation right now, you will be in the future where God calls you into a situation where he calls you to stand alone. And the best time to start doing that is when you're young, when you're a child, when you're a teenager. You make a determination in your heart, I am following Christ. Even if my friends stop following him, even if the adults in my life fall short, even if it means I'm following him alone. That's snapshot number one. Now let's turn our attention to Judas. We just read what he did in the garden, betraying Jesus with a kiss. Scriptures say that Satan had filled him. But in the hours after midnight, Jesus went through a series of sham trials, first with Annas, the high priest, and then with Caiaphas, and then the corrupt Sanhedrin council. These were the religious leaders in the community. And these trials, the the first two, happened before sunrise. Think about that with me. Imagine all of the religious leaders in our town. Imagine all the pastors in our town gathering at 2 a.m. for a trial, a religious trial, a criminal trial, a, a capital trial. We pick up the account in Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went away and hanged himself. Judas felt horrible about what he had done. He gave back the money he had taken to betray Jesus. He he was sorry. He was so overcome with sorrow, he took his life. Here's my question. If Judas felt sorry for what he did, if he even tried to make amends, returning the money, why is he now in hell? Why was he not forgiven? If he confessed, if, as it appears, we could even use the word repented, turning away from sin and trying to make amends. Now, you might ask, why can we say with such certainty 
that Judas is in hell. It's because Jesus said so in John 17, 12, that Judas was doomed for destruction. So the question then is, if sorrow for sin, like if confession, if, if feeling bad is all that's required, and we know that Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for any sin, then why not forgive Judas? Well, it's because sorrow for sin is not enough. Confession's not enough. It is repentance and trusting Christ. It's repentance and faith. We're saved by grace through what? Faith. That putting all your hope and confidence in Christ, and that is not what Judas did. But it is what another man did. It's our third snapshot. Takes us to uh, the middle of the day today, during those six hours that Jesus was on the cross, to one of the criminals being crucified with him. The book of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this man, like Judas, is aware of his sin. He's aware of his guilt. He even goes so far to say that he deserves and knows he deserves the judgment, the punishment on that cross. But confession doesn't save. Contrition doesn't save. That's where Judas stopped. But not this man. Verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He trusted his life to Jesus. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. And Jesus, without hesitation, while he's nailed to the cross, says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Perhaps you saw a sermon clip of uh, Alistair Begg making its way around online a couple of years ago. He illustrated the miracle of the thief's salvation this way. The moment after the thief's body died, his spirit, based on the promise of Jesus, would have been transported to, to paradise. And, and this is not the way the Bible says it, it happens, but bear with the illustration. Imagine an angel is there in paradise, and the angel says to the thief, how did you get here? The thief responds, I have no idea. Did you, did you do a lot of good things? That would be No. Uh, did you attend church or synagogue regularly? Again, no. Were you baptized? I don't even know what that is. So why are you here? All I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. See, he threw himself on the mercy of Christ. He put his faith in him. And, and that's why I hope you hear so often we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
that there's, that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the question that I want to ask is this, why did Jesus choose to suffer so horrendously and die on that cross? We often talk about Christ's work of propitiation through his death. It's a fancy theology word that the wrath of God that was supposed to be put on us was put on him. Therefore, he satisfies the justice of God and makes it possible for us to be forgiven. That's true. But, but propitiation or, or substitutionary atonement that Jesus dies in our place, those are the mechanisms of forgiveness. They tell us how it works, but they're not the reason. They're not the motivation. They're not the purpose. They're not the why of why Jesus went to the cross. The reason, the motivation, the purpose, the why was love. What's become my favorite Scripture over the years, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own, what? Love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's the good shepherd who loves his sheep. Saw this video a couple weeks ago. It's a bit lighthearted here. It is Good Friday, right? Um, All over Scripture, Uh, God describes us as sheep who are lost and who have gone astray. I thought this was a pretty good illustration of how Jesus rescues his lost sheep. your hand if you can relate a little to the sheep, that you you need rescuing, right? Not not just once, Lord, thank you for saving me, but uh, you're going to have to keep keep doing it. Um, Jesus suffered and died to rescue us, to save us. Why? Uh, Because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In a few minutes, we're going to sing again and, uh, and sing... Uh, one of my new favorite songs, Jesus Strong and Kind. And probably my favorite verse in the song is this. It says, Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me. Now, what happens when we respond to this love of God with repentance and faith? We get a new heart. Bible says we're born again. And you know what we're supposed to do as new creatures in Christ? What's the first and the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus pours out his love for us on the cross to break the power of sin and death and then fill our hearts with a love for God. 
I have another video for you. Again, an imperfect illustration. In this video, you're going to see a man with Down syndrome. And he's a grown man, 40 plus years old. And he's lived with his father for his entire life. And his father's now close to 80, if not past. And for the first time in the son's life, he spent a week away from his father at a a camp for um, those with special needs. This video was taken at the airport when the son comes home to the father after a week away. Father's loved his child for his whole life. What's the response of the son? Just overwhelming, unashamed, public what? Love for his father. Jesus died to reconcile us to the Father, to bring us back into perfect relationship with Father God. So, what should our response be to Good Friday? to the love of Christ shown to us on the cross. Confess our sins, put our faith in Him, and love Him. That's what communion is. It's a child running to the Father in love. Thank you for sending your Son. I love you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to, to come up front and to receive the bread and the cup. And when you take that cup, it's actually two cups. There's a a cracker in the cup underneath. And you're not required to do this. It's only for those who want to respond to the love of Christ with with confession and with faith and with with love. But if that's you, I, I want you to come up front in your heart. I want you to run up front, physically probably walk for safety, but but take that bread and cup, and and then go back to your seat with your friends and your family, and you can spend some time in prayer. You can just tell Jesus that that you trust Him and that you love Him, and and then we'll all take the elements together um, in a few minutes. So I invite you to come now.